0: If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. That's where we'll be. Now, we're going we're gonna to be there in a few minutes. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there. But um, there are some messages, some uh, passages, I should say, that um, cause me to preach them in a different way. And personally, I'm a storyteller. I love to tell stories. Most of you uh, go to movies because you like a good story. You might not read a lot of books, but you really go to the movies, you enjoy them because you like a good story, and the Bible is full of really good stories, and so I love to tell a good story, Um, and uh, so this passage of Scripture really lends itself to that kind of idea, and so it's going to be a bit of a story. We're going to get to Matthew 26 in a few moments. Now, if you're first joining us or joining us for the first time uh, we've been in a sermon series called In His Steps, where we have traced Christ's life chronologically. Now we are in His final week, and this series is called The Final Steps. And uh, um, so we have gotten to the point in Christ last week, His final week, between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. We've arrived at Thursday night, and as you well know, if you've been here for several weeks, there's been a lot that has happened specifically on that evening, and we're still there. Um, so we know that from Thursday at sundown, Jesus celebrated the Passover, the last supper, we call it, but he celebrated Passover with his disciples. Um, and, uh, so from Thursday at sundown, when he celebrated the Passover to Friday at sundown, when, uh, before Christ was buried, he was buried right before sundown. Um, It was an action-packed 24 hours. It's probably the most action-packed 24 hours in the Bible anywhere. And before we get into the events of Matthew 26, we need to take a step back so that we can understand these events in their full view. The title of the message today is Living Between the Gardens, and if you did get a bulletin, there's a little sheet inside where you can fill in some blanks, follow along, jot down your own notes, what impressed you, not what impressed you, but what your impressions were as I'm sharing this today. Um, So the first thing we see, the first... A garden that we come across in the Bible is the Garden of Eden. And I said we were taking a step back, so we're going way, way back. But Eden represents perfection, and that's their first blank if you want to write that down. The first garden is Eden, and it represented perfection. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created the earth, he made a very special garden that was separate from all the other beautiful places that he had created. He called that garden Eden. And he made it specifically to be a blessing to this very first couple that he was going to create, and hopefully a blessing to all that would follow. Adam was made out of dirt, outside the garden. He was not created in Eden. He was actually created outside of Eden from a a mound of dirt. And then he was made by God and placed in Eden so that he could enjoy all of the aspects of that garden. And he was told to enjoy it, to work it, and to keep it. And when Adam was told to keep the garden, that word in Hebrew means that he was now in charge of it. He was responsible for it. He was supposed to protect it. He was supposed to celebrate it and to preserve it. Now, Eve was created from Adam's rib. And they experienced perfection in a way that you and I have never known. On our most holy, best day ever, ever, we have never been able to experience perfection the way Adam and Eve did. There was no sin. There was no sickness, no allergies, no COVID, no sadness. There was no guilt, no condemnation. There was no pain. There was only joy, love, peace, and contentment. They were surrounded by life. They were surrounded by fruit. I mean, imagine, put yourself in that story. Put yourself in that place as either Adam or Eve. You'll fall into one of those categories. And so put yourself in the garden and imagine taking a bite of a banana for the first time. And nobody is there to tell you, you got to peel it first. Because it tastes totally different when you peel it versus when you just take a big old bite. Imagine coming across a jalapeno for the first time. And nobody tells you what it is. It's colorful. There's red ones, too. And those are really fun. I once mistook that for a Roma tomato because it was on my pizza. I thought it was a Roma tomato. It was not a Roma tomato. And it was a mistake I'll never make again. And so... They're surrounded by animals that mean them no harm. They're surrounded by fruit. They're surrounded by uh, a, a, a scenario. They're, surrounded in, they're in life, and there's no fear because they existed in a perfect state in God's love. That was God's desire. The state of existence that Adam and Eve enjoyed was what God wanted for every human being to enjoy. He created humanity in perfection, and he gave them one command in order to stay in that state. Do not eat of that tree. One specific tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see, Adam and Eve only knew good. They didn't know evil. And God, I don't think, wanted them to know about evil. He didn't want them to know about Satan's realm and the symptoms of sin. He only wanted them to know perfection. The easiest way to stay in that state is to stay in a position of obedience to his command. Now, I don't think, this is my opinion, but I don't think the fruit in and of itself was evil. Because the fruit was created by God, and he put it in his perfect garden. Eating the fruit isn't a sin unless you're told, don't eat the fruit. And so he was told by a higher authority not to do something, and they were told that, and they understood that, and they believed that, and yet they listened to another voice. And you even hear a little bit of confusion, a little bit of, Um, disparity when God tells Adam, do not eat. And then Adam tells Eve, do not eat, don't even touch it. Now that may have just been Adam's way of saying, let's just not go anywhere near it. But God didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. And this voice that appeared in the garden began to tell them God was withholding something good from them. God made them to be like him, but he wasn't giving them the full picture. If they truly wanted to be like God, they needed to eat from this tree so they could see the existence of both good and evil the way God could. This, of course, was a lie. And instead of making Adam and Eve more like God, it created a divide between them that was catastrophic. Understand that there are times in our lives when we recognize, we have to recognize the voice of the enemy. When he comes to us and he says, God is withholding from you something good, something you deserve. We need to recognize that voice because that is not God. That is the enemy. And he's trying to get us to take something that, take something that is not in God's hand. If it's in God's hand, it's good and it's for us. But if we're trying to take something else that's not in God's hand, we need to recognize that voice when we hear it. And so instead of making Adam and Eve more like God, what did it do? It did the opposite. It made them more like the enemy. And this divide that it created between mankind and God was catastrophic. And that shows us the second garden, which is earth, now broken. The second garden is earth outside of Eden, which is now broken. In Genesis chapter 3, God came down in bodily form. When God comes down in bodily form, this is something called a Christophany. This is an appearance of Jesus Christ, which is God in a body, in the Old Testament. And sometimes we're we like, what? That's crazy. That's heresy. It's actually not. We understand the, the fourth man in Fiery furnace with you know, the three Hebrew children was the son of God. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognized that it was the son of God. When God came down and spoke to Abraham face to face, shall I hide from Abraham my plan? And so God spoke to Abraham face to face. That's called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God tabernacled with us, God in a body. And so Jesus comes down In Genesis chapter 3, and something is different. Something has happened in this garden that God has made. And so God came down to see for himself. Jesus walked in the garden. But Adam and Eve heard the sound of him coming. And so they grabbed fig leaves. And they covered their nakedness and shame. And they hid. And Jesus started. Uh, interestingly enough, the very first question in the Bible was asked by Satan, did God really say? Jesus asked the second question, where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, did Jesus lack information? Could Jesus not see their hiding behind the bushes? Of course, he knew. I think it's less of a question of Adam's physical location as it is his spiritual location. I don't see you like I used to. There's something different. Something has changed in you. You, Where is the Adam that I used to know? And Adam and Eve confessed their sin to God, and they were shown Eden's exit. They could no longer be trusted since they were now clothed in sin and shame. Genesis 3.23, this is a really, really cool little thing that is in Scripture. Genesis 3.23, it says that God sent them out from Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. I want you to imagine the incredible irony of being walked to this spot, this pile of dirt where Jesus knelt down and formed your body, breathing life physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual life into your nostrils, and now he has taken you back to the exact same spot where you were created from, dirt that is your closest relative. And you are told to work that exact spot as a garden for your own food. The first garden, Eden, was off limits to them now, This second garden, earth outside of Eden, would be significantly more difficult. You see, in Eden, the fruit and the vegetables, they were already prepared for them to enjoy, and they did. Animals were cooperative and nonviolent. You could actually walk a cat on a leash if you wanted to. You can't do that now. They're not cooperative. If you call them, they don't come. And so, but once sin entered the world, I'm sorry, cat people. Once sin entered the world, Adam and Eve now had to plant their own crops. They had to grow their own food. They had to tend their own garden. They had to deal with weeds and thorns and thistles. They had to prune their own trees and they had to try to not get eaten by the wild animals that now inherited a sinful nature when mankind did. I mean, if you're Adam and Eve, and a lion comes at you, I don't know what the odds are, but they ain't good. You don't have any weapons to defend yourself. It's just you, Eve, and this. Anyway, we'll move on. You get it. And so because of Adam and Eve, this new garden, earth outside of Eden's borders, was broken. Sin had created shame, created guilt, created pain and sadness. Sorrow, despair, anxiety, depression, and brokenness. And what was once whole and beautiful has now become broken and defective. Mankind had soiled God's creation through their foolish acts. Choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth of God's word. For 4,000 years, mankind struggled to repair the damage that Adam and Eve had done. For 4,000 years, there was searching, there was sacrificing animals, there was struggling to worship a God they couldn't see with their, when, when their next-door neighbors had built an idol that they could see and bow down to. 4,000 years of frustration, wondering if they were clean enough, good enough, righteous enough, holy enough, God provided guidance and assurance, but there had, there had to always be that lingering question, as it is still in our relationship with God, am I right with him? Am I right with him? We can do everything the Bible commands us to do, and then some. And we can still have that lingering question in the back of our heads, but am I right with him? At the perfect time, Jesus was born on this earth to answer that gnawing question. He lived his life in full view of thousands of people who could have easily pointed out the flaws in him if he had any. They could have pointed out false teaching if there was any found in his words. They could have demonstrated that he was a fraud if if the people that he had healed or raised from the dead were people that were planted in the audience. You know how magicians randomly pick somebody from the audience? Except we now know it ain't random. They're on the payroll. You look like a random human being. Come up here. And so they could have... They lived with these people. They would bring out the blind and lame people from their village, people they knew were sick, and they brought them to Jesus. If if this was all a charade, how easy it would be for people to disprove Jesus from being the Messiah. But he wasn't flawed. He wasn't a false teacher. He wasn't a fraud. He was the legitimate son of God. 11 disciples, we're going to go ahead and subtract Judas. 11 disciples walked with him for about three years, stepping where he stepped, hearing him teach, watching him work, and keeping a very close eye on his character. And these 11 men, and even way more than that, all went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Would any of you? die for a lie? Would any of you willingly be executed in the most horrific and painful manner for something that you knew was a lie? No. I think most people, if they know it's a lie, as soon as that whip hits their back, as soon as the first bit of pain hits, they're like, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It wasn't, it wasn't real. It wasn't real. We just made it up. We just made it up because you want the pain to stop. But when you are fully convinced that it is the truth You can never go back. And so, nearing the end of his ministry and the end of his life, Jesus walked into a third garden. And this is where we pick up in Matthew 26, looking at verses 36 through 38. I have it up on the screen. It's in the ESV version for you. It says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here. While I go over there and pray and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So we come across the third garden, which is Gethsemane. It's a garden of sorrow. Gethsemane represents sorrow. I think it's interesting, if you want to write this down, the word Gethsemane means an oil press. Gethsemane means an oil press. Olive oil was actually considered to be one of the best medicines of their day. And this place was known for its olive groves. So how fitting that this is the place of greatest pressure for Jesus. But the place where the fruit of his righteousness will be most demonstrated. He took Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden than the other disciples. And Jesus probably changed right before their very eyes. Just a couple hours earlier, they had celebrated the Passover and they had eaten food and they had sung hymns of praise to God. And then the disciples decided to argue about who's the greatest in a, in a church service, basically, they decided to have an argument. And Jesus, instead of giving in to their argument, he got up from the table and he began to wash the feet of the disciples, demonstrating who really was the greatest. It's the greatest servant. And he had prayed over them, the, what's called the high priestly prayer. That's what we covered last week, that their unity, the unity among believers in Christ will be a powerful force in a divided world. He led them into the garden, but now something is different in Jesus. He was sorrowful and troubled. In the Greek, it's grieved and distressed. He is headed for betrayal. He's headed for suffering. He's headed for death, and he knows it. The word sorrowful means that he was thrown into sorrow, he was uneasy. He was grieving. I want to let that image sit in your mind for a minute. Jesus was grieving. Unlike us, Jesus knows how the story will unfold. Now, we know because we can read it, but the disciples didn't know it. And so the disciples don't understand why Jesus is so bothered by all this. He's told them repeatedly that he's going to be betrayed and given into the hands of the uh, chief priests, and he's going to be crucified. He's specific. That means he's going to be turned over to the Romans. The Jews could stone him, but he specifically says he'd be crucified. Somehow the Romans would get involved, but that he would rise on the third day. So he's already told them and they're clueless. They don't know what's about to happen, but Jesus does. He knew about the death, yes, but he also knew about the glory and the resurrection that would follow that death because he had prophesied about it several times to his disciples. So he knew the end of these events and yet he still grieved. Reminds us when Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who's died, he gets the word that Lazarus is sick and he decides Lazarus will be okay. The sickness, he says, this sickness will not end in death. So, because Jesus is thinking about the end, not the current situation. So Jesus stays where he is for two days. Then he begins to journey back. By the time he gets to Bethany, where Lazarus is, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And and of course, Mary's response is uh, when Jesus says, roll away the stone, because I'm about to do something you ain't seen before. And Martha's response is, but Lord, by now he stinketh. He stinketh. And John eleven 35, I, I've told you this before. This was my favorite scripture growing up as a kid because it was the easiest one to remember. Jesus wept. Shortest scripture in the Bible. And so anytime they would ask me, what's your favorite scripture? So that you could get a piece of candy in children's church. Y'all ever do that? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Piece of cake. Give me that candy. But Jesus wept. Let that sink in. He knew what he was about to do. He knew that death would have no hold on Lazarus. He knew. He even told the disciples, it's good that we're not there when he's sick because I want you all to see the glory of God revealed through me, through what I do, through my work. And so Jesus told the disciples, you're going to see something you ain't seen before. Now, he had raised people from the dead before, but that was typically right after death or within the first few days. By the fourth day, the Jews believed That the spirit of of a person's body had left and was now either in heaven or hell. And so after, at the fourth day, you couldn't bring somebody back from the dead. And Jesus says, I'm going to do something that's going to blow all of your superstitions out of the water. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to call Lazarus to come forth. He knows that Lazarus is coming back from the grave, and yet he still weeps. Jesus knows what he's headed towards. He knows the betrayer is around the corner. He knows that that the suffering and the pain and the death are around the corner and he knows the resurrection that will follow. And yet he grieves. He grieves. I don't think he was grieving for what he had to do. I think he grieved uh, you know, it, Jesus did what he had to do out of love for us. So I don't think he's grieving for the outcome, because he knew that his resurrection power would grant us resurrection life. I think he grieved, and this is my opinion, I think he grieved because for the first time ever, the father and the son would be out of perfect fellowship. That when Jesus became sin who knew no sin, it had to be the most traumatic moment of his life. I think that's why Jesus was sorrowful why he grieved the word Matthew used for troubled in verse 37 is the strongest of the Greek words in the new Testament for depression. It refers to a heaviness that weighs a person down so that they are in great anguish. Jesus illustrated that when he said in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed to the point with sorrow to the point of death. He was encompassed with sorrow and grief and sadness to the point of death. Maybe in that moment he remembered the first garden. He is in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he remembered the first garden when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and he knew them in perfect fellowship. Maybe he thought about how they had ruined Eden and how he had expelled them from the first garden to work the earth from where Adam had been taken. And now the earth had been broken and tainted by sin. Maybe he thought of the perfect unity of the father, the son and the Holy spirit that they had all had until now when that unity is threatened by sin's consequences. Maybe he thought about the suffering that mankind had allowed and would allow for thousands more years because of their own sin and because of their own selfishness. Maybe he thought about you. Maybe he thought about me. Jesus told Peter, James, and John to stay with him and watch, be vigilant, be cautious, be present. Matthew 26, 39, it says that he walked a little farther He fell on his face and he prayed, I think, the most honest and transparent prayer I've ever heard. He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup. And what is this cup? This is a cup representing suffering and death. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If you're able, if anyone has the power to stop this, it's you. Nevertheless, not as I will not what my flesh has in mind, not what I desire, not what will bring me delight, but as you will. It's a simple prayer, one sentence long, but you can hear the turmoil. He was at his emotional breaking point. In Luke 22, it actually says that an angel appeared and ministered to him, but even that was not enough to remove the anguish he felt. He got up, he walked over to Peter, James, and John, and he found them fast asleep. This is very late at night, early Friday morning. And he woke up Peter and asked him, couldn't you stay awake for a little bit? Stay alert that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is ready and willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus walked away and he prayed a second time. And this time he said, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The cup of the new covenant. Remember going back to Passover when Jesus held up the cup of the covenant. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And so this cup of the new covenant that Jesus held up in the Passover service Just a few hours before was a cup that was full of suffering, betrayal, pain, and death. The only way a covenant is created in scripture is something has to die. So this was not an easy task. Jesus is not on autopilot here. He is fully aware of everything that's about to happen. Yes, he knew why it had to happen, but it doesn't make it any easier. This was costly, and Jesus knew it. This would be painful physically as well as mentally and emotionally. He would be taken to his very limit. All his disciples would abandon him, not just Judas, not just Peter betraying him. All of his disciples would abandon him in the garden in a short amount of time, fulfilling what Zechariah 13 says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Luke twenty two forty four says this, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke is a, was a physician. He was a doctor. And according to a journal of dermatology, this occurs when an individual is under extreme levels of physical and emotional stress around your sweat glands in your forehead is a network of blood vessels. And these blood vessels will rupture from the stress and the strain. And so when you continue to sweat, the blood will actually come out of your sweat glands. There are times possibly at the death of a loved one, someone close to us where we grieved so intensely that our forehead was just like the muscles in our forehead constricted so tightly through our grief, you might have been close to the point where these blood vessels might begin to rupture. And so with blood dropping from his forehead, Jesus prayed again in total surrender to God's will. Your will be done. Your desire be accomplished. Your purposes be established. He got up and he found the disciples sleeping again. I think this is where we can obviously say they're teenagers. Because they're always sleeping. They're they're only awake when they want to be awake. If they don't have to be awake, they're sleeping. This is clearly summer vacation, spring break. It's spring break for the disciples. And so they're sleeping again. This time he didn't wake them up. He didn't walk over and kick them, oh, I'm sorry, did I disturb you? He didn't do any of that. He walked away knowing the frailty, knowing the weakness of these men. They didn't know what he knew. They didn't understand what was around the corner, so they slept soundly in the garden. Jesus walked away from them and he prayed the same prayer now for a third time. This garden of pressing, of pressure, of turmoil, of suffering has reached its climax. The time for the betrayal of Christ is at hand. Soldiers were on the move in the garden. The betrayer was there. Now, this would be a terrible way to end the story. Have you ever watched a movie and you thought, well, that was disappointing? The way they ended the story... I could have written a better ending than that, and we might think, Lost? Seinfeld? There are plenty to choose from as far as how to end a story good, and if we ended it here, that would be really disappointing, and you might be really sad and cry into your tacos at lunch today, and I could understand it. That'd be a terrible way to end the story. We understand, thankfully for all of us, that's not the end of the story. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, which we will get into more in the coming weeks, Jesus Christ made a way of salvation. But he also made a way for something else. The suffering that he endured in the garden of pressure was looking forward in time to yet another garden. Something that we long for and we look forward to as well. Something that we see in number four, the final garden, which is new earth. The focus of new earth is restoration, the restoration of all things. For nearly 2,000 years after Jesus' life and death, we've been living on the promise that one day he will make all things new. He wrote in Revelation 20, well, John wrote, but Jesus spoke in Revelation um, 21, 1 and 2. John is saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new earth will be a complete restoration of the world that we now inhabit. The corrupted, decaying, dying world we live in will be recreated as a perfect, new, undefiled, incorruptible world full of God's life. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow, suffering, or death. We will be in a kingdom of light and life all things are made new in God's presence. While we still even now are looking forward to that day, and what a thing to look forward to. The first garden Eden is past, and there's no going back there. The second garden Eden, uh, earth was broken and lost and corrupted, and There is a third garden, the garden of pressure, the garden of Gethsemane, that is a place of sorrow and sacrifice. And yet, when Jesus rose from the dead out of that garden tomb, it ultimately led to our redemption. So in the fourth garden, what was redeemed will now be restored. We still live between the gardens. For 2,000 years, we've been living between Gethsemane and this new earth. We're not at the fourth garden yet, but we are well on our way. And we see around us the need for God's restoration in this world. We know how lost and broken our world is, and so we hold on to the promise that one day jesus' own words from revelation twenty one five will finally be realized. Behold, I am making all things new. not one thing, not a few things, not some things. I am making all. Things new. The life you had before was tainted by sin and it will be no more. Everything that is broken in you, he will make new. Everything that is hurting in you, he will make new. Everything that is damaged in you, he will make new. We look forward to that day of the, his restoration of all things. Worship team, come on up. Would you stand with me this morning? The question we need to answer is, what is our responsibility as we live in between these gardens? What are we supposed to do? Yes, we know the truth, but what has God commanded us to do while we wait? We are supposed to share the story of Jesus Christ with as many people as we can, in all the ways that we can, at all the times that we can. That nothing else in this world will transform people like the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will ever satisfy the longing in their hearts like Jesus. Nothing will ever save them from the power of sin like Jesus will. As the old song asks the question, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? And it answers, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Folks, our world is looking. They're looking for something. They're looking for something that will make them whole again and the answer is something we have we have the answer to that question when they ask what will make me whole what am i missing what do i lack when the rich young ruler came to jesus and he said i've kept all these all these commandments since birth which is not true it's not true you can't keep your commandments from birth come on now newborns are very selfish I've got twin three and a half year olds in the in the nursery. They're three and a half. They're still selfish. They still don't keep the commandments. And so this young man said, "I've kept all these from birth. What do I still lack?" And that is the question that our world is asking. Possibly non-verbally, they're not asking the question. You know, they don't always ask the question verbally. They sometimes ask it through their behavior. I did this and it didn't satisfy, I did this and it didn't satisfy. What will make me whole again? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus so when we look for atonement and covering and forgiveness of our sins, it says nothing can for sin atone, nothing good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so while we wait for the final restoration of all things, our responsibility is to know him and to make him known. Yes, we long to be caught up with him. We long to get out of Dodge. We long to get away from the brokenness and the pain. We long to be in heaven, but why, but we need to take as many people as we can with us. We've been going through this series on Wednesdays through the book of Revelation. Folks, spoiler alert, you don't want to be here when it all happens. Read Revelation if you haven't before. You don't want to miss the rapture. You don't want to be here when God begins to pour out his wrath on the unbelieving world. The life living for Jesus Christ, as hard as it may seem to you now, is way easier than it will be during the great tribulation. And so our job is to, you know, we, we long to, to be caught up with him, but we need to take as many people as we can. And people can only do that when we are being faithful witnesses. Living out the Christ life in front of them. Sharing the grace and the message of Christ with all we come in contact with. Now for some of you, you may know the gospel. You may know all about Jesus. But you would be honest and say that your heart is far from him. Now is the perfect time to make that change. Right now, just bow your heads for a moment. Even if you feel like, man, I'm I'm in good shape. There are times where we do something God doesn't want us to do. And there's times we don't do something that God does want us to do. There's times our attitudes need to be under his control. So right now, just ask for God's forgiveness for any sin in your life. A sin you committed, a sin in your attitude, a sin of something you should have done that God told you to do and you didn't do. Ask for God's help to be more like Christ. To love him more than you love that sin. To love him more than you love that sin. That's weighing you down and destroying you from the inside out. When you love Jesus Christ more than you love anything else, nothing will have a hold on you. You will be forgiven and free in Jesus Father forgive us of our sins cleanse us from our trespasses and our unrighteousness our desire God is to be in unity with you you have made the way that we we couldn't make you you paved the way you did what we couldn't do you offered yourself as a sacrifice the, the greatest sacrifice to atone for our sin Let us take ownership of that. You died for our sin, my sin. So, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness. And we receive the hope and the grace of God. That we now look forward to a day when you will restore all things. And, Lord, cause us to be obedient not not being disobedient like Adam and Eve were where we know what you've told us to do and yet we ignore it, but we choose to be obedient sons and daughters and we choose to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We choose to invest this gospel message into all the people we can and all the ways that we can. Help us have our eyes open to those opportunities where we can give an encouraging word, where we can share the grace and message of Jesus Christ with someone.